Production support for Earth Eats comes from Charles Schwab and Company, Inc. Independent branch leader Jeremy Zeichner, CFP, and Associates offer personalized financial plans and continuing financial education matched to investors' goals. More at schwab.com Bloomington. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats. I'm your host, Kate Young. So, but this whole idea of these kinds of farmers markets at which people value diversity, become white spaces, I think has to do with liberal white society's discomfort with race more generally. This week, we're devoting most of the show to a discussion of farmers markets and whiteness. We'll be speaking with farmers, shoppers, organizers, and authors about the culture of farmers markets and some of the barriers people of color can face in participating in farmers markets as vendors or as customers. So stay with us. We'll start with Alex Chambers in the news. Hi, Alex. Hey, Kate. Indiana is on the short list for two key agencies that the USDA plans to relocate. The U.S. Department of Agriculture says it's moving the National Institute of Food and Agriculture and the Economic Research Service out of Washington, D.C., Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue says that will ensure the USDA is the most efficient and customer-focused agency in the federal government. But the move is facing pushback from farmers like Liz Brownlee, who testified in Congress last week. She says having the agencies closer won't make them more effective. A lot of people are quitting when faced with this relocation. They're just moving on to other jobs. That's a problem for beginning farmers because that's a loss of institutional knowledge. And if we're doing research about key issues like climate change and farmland preservation, I need as much knowledge in the institution as possible. Brownlee owns and manages Nightfall Farm with her husband, Nate. She's also the president of the Indiana Young Farmers Coalition. This week, NIFA employees voted to unionize in response to the proposed move. Critics say the relocation could cripple the two agencies. The USDA estimates as many as 50% of existing staff would move on to other jobs instead of relocating. The Environmental Protection Agency has decided large livestock operations can stop reporting toxic emissions from animal waste. Environmental groups attacked the move, saying it puts communities surrounding the facilities at higher risk because they won't have access to information about harmful gases. Until 2008, federal law required farms to alert the government when toxic pollution reached levels that threatened public health. When President Bush gave big farms a loophole, environmental groups sued. A federal court overturned the loophole in 2017. Health agencies list a wide range of risks from waste lagoon emissions, such as asthma and chronic lung disease. Groups such as Earth Justice have already pledged lawsuits against the new rule. The USDA never approved the growth of genetically modified wheat. So why does it keep popping up? A weed strain resistant to the weed killer glyphosate, also known as Roundup, was found growing wild in the northwestern U.S. for the fourth time since 2013. The plants were discovered in a fallow field in Washington state. 
The previous cases include 22 stalks of GM wheat found in Washington and Oregon. The USDA never found the source of those stalks. According to the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, there is no evidence the wheat has entered the food chain. And that's the news. Thanks to Chad Bouchard and Taylor Killo for their stories. Thank you, Alex. My pleasure, Kate. People shop at the Bloomington Community Farmers Market for many different reasons. Well, I think it's important to shop local. You know, when you bring in your things closer to home, you're not spreading the pollution as much. Local food, learning where your food comes from, learning how it's grown. Well, it's my number one social occasion of the week. I see my friends here. I'm part of a large community of people who like good food and farmers who like to grow it. It's just a very special place. and I feel like a part of this community, all the people. To keep our money in the community and spend locally and grow locally, I think it's all important. The food is fantastic. I think it's a small thing that I can do to help with climate change and with taking care of the earth. Meeting the people that grow your food, meeting the people that take the time to do that, talking about food, talking about community, it's a, it's a hub. In foodie circles, there's a lot of talk about the value of knowing your farmer. Last week, shoppers at the farmer's market in Bloomington had to consider what it really means to know your farmer. As they entered the market, they might have been handed a flyer. The flyers were alerting shoppers that one of the family farms selling vegetables at market allegedly has ties to the white supremacist group Identity Europa. It's also known as American Identity. When I arrived, I met Abby Ang, who was handing out flyers from the Democracy for Monroe County table in a section of the market known as Information Alley. The flyer was intended to let people know about the farmers in the booth in question. I think it's important that my money not go to supporting those causes, even indirectly especially since they don't like people like me. (laughs) Renee Miller was at the table with Abby. I asked her if she was surprised to hear this accusation about one of the farmers at market. No, not so much because it really, it was for this specific incident, but I did live in rural Monroe County for 28 years and just moved to the city. And I had white nationalists and and KKK all around me, so I am not surprised. But I I did not move to the city to be buying my vegetables from them. I sure as heck didn't know. A lot of people were shocked that vendors at this market would identify that way. And it got us thinking about the relationship between farmers markets and whiteness. So we decided to talk with people at the market, growers, activists, and shoppers, about the culture of the market. I asked if they thought the farmers market seemed accessible to people of color, both as growers and as shoppers. I started with Abby Ang at the information table. So I know that the farmer's market itself is, um, has a lot of white people in it, and Bloomington does feel fairly white. Right now, it doesn't feel as accessible, considering that even their presence here kind of lends an atmosphere of lack of safety, even if they're not outright saying anything negative or discriminatory that we can tell. But... I think the market could do a lot better in terms of access. I don't see a whole lot of vendors that are people of color. I I have gotten some feedback from some groups. So like there's a capoeira group, 
I believe, and they contacted me and they say that they, they're not exactly vendors, I suppose, but they perform here and they were, the group said that they felt very threatened just knowing that this was around. And I think that that would, if, for example, they stopped coming here, they wouldn't be able to make money for one thing, but second of all, it would really detract from the vibrancy of the market and have this market just remain really white. And I don't want the market to become that. I want the market to continue to take steps to become more inclusive. Sean Ost of Gettys Creek Farm has a long history with the Bloomington Farmers Market. My first market was in 1983 as a teenager. Then my brother and I came back in 91 and I've been doing it on and off ever since. And what do you what have you got to for sale here today? I have shiitake mushrooms, garlic scapes, and asparagus. I asked him the same question I asked Abby. Do you feel like the market in general is open and accessible to people of color? I hope so. I hope that I am welcoming and open and I yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Do you know a lot of other farmers who sell here who are not white? No. There, uh, yeah, there are very few. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, how hard it is to acquire land and, and uh, how it's all set up to make it easy for rich people and hard for poor people. So if you're economically disadvantaged, then it's a hard market to break into unless you've inherited. And that's how I got into it. It's because my family had land. So I think for the most part, most of the vendors here are very accepting of diversity. I'm not sure what it looks like to someone of color who comes into a market that's mostly white. So I can only imagine it would be intimidating. I think the economic part of the market kind of also excludes people. What do you mean by that? Meaning produce is pretty expensive. And people have to make money. And it's hard to compete with big ag. And so I think you're probably not going to see a portion of our community because of that, because they can't afford it. So So whether that's poor white people or people of color, people who don't have a lot of money. Like me. (laughs) I I do shop here at the market, but I I grow most of what I eat, so... <laughs> it's much cheaper. Yeah. Amy Countryman walked by with a backpack full of food and a couple of canvas shopping bags. What have you what do you have in your pack? Four bunches of carrots, a Chinese cabbage, lettuce from four different people, some collard greens, some broccoli, some cauliflower, Swiss chard, cilantro. I think that's it. Do you come to the market often? I come every week. Why is it important for you to buy your produce at the farmer's market? Um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. I think it's just a very special place. First off, I mean, I feel like a part of this community. All the people 
so many people here are people that I love and that have cared for me when I was having a hard time in my life. And um, the food is fantastic. I think it's a small thing that I can do to help with climate change and with taking care of the earth. And I just love eating this food. It's just delicious. I asked Amy if she thought there were barriers for people of color participating in the farmer's market as farmers or as shoppers. I mean, I think that's a bigger question than the market. I think that speaks to the structure and the white supremacy in our society as a whole, and things aren't equal for all people. And so, yes, absolutely, there's barriers. There's barriers in every aspect of life. One thing that helps us overcome barriers in public radio is production support. We'll be right back. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Charles Schwab and Company, Inc., independent branch leader Jeremy Zeichner, CFP and Associates, offer personalized financial plans and continuing financial education matched to investors' goals. More at schwab.com slash Bloomington. If you're just joining us, we're at the Bloomington Farmer's Market where I caught up with Jennifer Robinson, who was with her husband Jeff Hartenfeld of Hart Farm. Jennifer is a professor of practice in Indiana University's Department of Anthropology, and she wrote a book about the Bloomington Farmer's Market back in 2007. Do you feel like the market is accessible generally, or is it diversified? I think there's more diversity at the market than you get in any particular five-minute snapshot. Um, And I think people make a lot of assumptions about what diversity looks like when they're just scanning the market. But at the same time, the market vendors and the customers could be far more diversified. I know that the market management and leadership tries to do a lot, but it's very difficult to overcome the systemic historical racism that is pervasive in the United States. I think there's, there is a lot of goodwill on both the customer, on the customer side, the vendors, the management, but it's tough to break through those impediments. Stacy Decker and Greg Deemer of Stanford Farm sell bedding plants, vegetables and herbs, annuals, perennials. I asked Stacy if she thought the market seemed accessible to people of color. It's definitely something that both my husband and I talk a lot about is the price of food, the availability of this market to people of color, to anybody that would want to be here. It's challenging because you do pay higher prices here. Although you can get SNAP benefits and, you know, use those on all things food here. So I think that's helpful. And the farmer's market actually doubles them. Yes, they actually double them. So we get a lot of people that come and get plants that are food plants from us with them. Vendor-wise, there's not a lot of people of color, not not many people of color. Um, And so... I think that that 
could be very challenging. I think that everybody has to know this is a, a welcoming place for anybody, but it, it takes balance, it takes communication, it takes understanding how to cook food in a busy life. I mean, it, there's a lot of things that come into this reaching all kinds of people with different schedules and working lots or not having time to cook. This situation at hand with a vendor who has these beliefs, I think it's a perfect time for us to talk about these hard things because we don't like to talk about it and then nothing changes. The biggest thing is I would like to hear from people of color. I would like to hear from Muslims. I would like to hear from Jewish people. I would like to hear from anybody about what could be made more welcoming and encompassing at this market. The reason that we started the Indiana Black Farmers Co-op was because when you think of farmers, you never think of black people, especially not black women. My name is Sharana Moore. I am the founder and CEO at Lawrence Community Gardens. Sharana is also one of the founders of the Indiana Black Farmers Co-op. They run a farmer's market specifically for black farmers on the east side of Indianapolis. Sharana says one of the barriers that has kept her community from selling at market in Indianapolis is a requirement for insurance policies, which are costly for small farmers. Another reason why black farmers, you won't see us at the market is because white people have stolen our land over the course of time. Which means farmers in her community are growing on small urban plots. A third of an acre, a quarter of an acre. They're growing enough to feed their families and their neighbors enough to give away. A lot of times they're not even growing enough to sell at the market. Um, There's some hurdles and some barriers, not only that, for black farmers, just me personally, when I go to panel discussions and workshops and classes around farming, there are never any black people. I will Mm -hmm. be one of maybe one or two black people there. Mm -hmm. And so it steers us away because we don't have any commonality with other people in the room. The white farmers in our our networks, um, they have hoop houses. They... Um, buy seeds and seedlings in abundance and they split the cost. They have a shared cooler that they use um, that is just part of their network and how they operate. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. Mm-hmm. We don't have that type of network and those type of connections. They share tractors and tillers and we don't have that. I can't really say it's racism. I'm saying it's a favoritism because sometimes things aren't about what you know. It's about who you know. Mm-hmm. And it and those networks don't they, they don't feel like it's not something you could become a part of. You, no. It does it doesn't feel no. open to you. No, it's definitely not open to me. <laughs> and so I've had people say, you know, why does it have to be black farmers? You know. Well, because we don't have the same network as white farmers do. In order for us to grow and for us to know that we have support out here, we have to say it's a black farmer co-op. And are you building some, trying to build some of those networks yourself so that you can share some equipment and you can? Yes, we are. This is our second year with this co-op, and so we are still growing, not only in just members, but 
in knowledge and resources. But again, it's not always about what you know. It's about who you know. And so getting connected to people that can help us to acquire what we need, getting grant funds and things like that. Um, another thing that we found is that black people don't value the farmer's market like white people do. So white people consider farmer's market a social event. They'll go every week to pick up their fresh fruits and vegetables. They also understand more of the power of organic and supporting the local economy. Because we have, as black people, gotten accustomed to buying lower-end quality of fruits and vegetables, um, looking for the lowest price, um, steering away from organic because of it being more expensive. So when we're not uh, understanding the power and the value of the farmer's market. So a lot of times we won't attend. Um, the products that they sell at the farmer's market won't always appeal to us. A lot of times we're not looking for the specialty peppers that are very beautiful and going to be colorful in the salad or the specialty mushrooms. We're just looking for everyday items that are maybe organic or local at a reasonable or affordable access price. So that is the reason we started the market. First of all, we're growing in our own neighborhood. So we needed to make sure that the food that we're growing in our neighborhood stays in our neighborhood. It would be easy for us to pack up and come to the Bloomington market and sell our produce at top dollar. But that would defeat the purpose of what we're trying to solve in our own neighborhood with the food desert. So because people don't have access to food, we need to make sure that our food is available. And we also need to make sure that it is affordable for our people. Um, we need to make sure that we accept because our community is mostly low income and they have forms of uh, government assistance like SNAP and WIC. Um, those are the items that we have to be able to accept at our market. I asked Sharana about her community, where her farm and the Black Farmers Market are located. And she talked about the intersections of race and class in her Far East Side neighborhood in Indianapolis. We have um, 25 liquor stores and about my radius and three grocery stores. Wow. People can walk to the liquor store, but they can't walk to the grocery right. store. And they also, and our grocery stores are also not accessible by public transportation. Oh, so wow. the challenge of for people getting food, if you think about the fact that a mother with two children, one in a stroller, maybe one on her arm or holding hands, walking to the bus stop three blocks away from her apartment uh, in the heat or extreme cold, first of all. What can she carry? Can she carry fresh greens back on the bus when it's hot outside? No. Can she carry milk and carry her babies at the same time? No. And that's a struggle. Some people don't know what it's like to not have a car because they got their first car when they were 15. Some people don't know what it's like to be have to choose between getting your car repaired and buying your groceries. Some people don't know what that's like. And so... We know that because our our community suffers from this and they, they have to deal with this these issues on a daily basis, how do I get food? I'm just going to go over here and buy these fried chicken instead of eating a salad because mm -hmm. there's nowhere for me to get a salad. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and then to imagine keeping track of like, wait, when is that farmer's market and how do I get there? You know, that's that's a, that's a whole nother, um, whole nother struggle. That's why you don't see a lot of black people at the farmer's market. It's just not our, if we haven't made it a culturally acceptable thing for black people to do. So, but this whole idea of these kinds of farmers markets at which people value diversity become white spaces, I think has to do with liberal white society's discomfort with race more generally. Alison Alkin is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of the Pacific. She also teaches in the food studies program there. Her first book was about the racial dynamics of food politics at a couple of farmers markets in California. Where we want diversity, we as kind of lefty white people want diversity, but don't know how to talk about or think about race in critical ways that might actually make us change our spaces in ways that would actually be more inviting. Because what I found when I would ask vendors at the North Berkeley market or regular customers at the North Berkeley market about race, they would say things like, oh, well, we don't need to do anything special to make it inclusive. What we have is should be attractive to everybody. And anybody who likes good food will feel welcome here. And there was a real problem with that from my perspective, because first of all, they were defining people who like good food, their version of good food as good people and other people as kind of less. And then they were saying that just because they want other people to feel welcome and feel comfortable, that they do. Which is to say, it's a lot more complicated than just wanting to be welcoming. And as Sharana Moore pointed out, some of it's beyond the control of any one farmer's market. But it's worth thinking about and talking about. This issue to me is not really about these particular farmers. It's a bigger issue for our community to come together around and it's a bigger thing for us all to talk about and work out. I think it's a perfect time for us to talk about these hard things because we don't like to talk about it and then nothing changes. I absolutely think this is an opportunity for us as a community to come together to try to figure out how we wanted, how we want to be And so I have suggested to the city, and I hope other people will do the same, that we hold a community forum that is moderated where people can come together in real life to talk about this in a way that is safe and respectful for everybody involved so that it's not all happening over Facebook or with rumors or just, you know, with imprecise information, but have a meeting where we can come together and actually get factual information to people and really talk about how do we move forward as a community together in a way that's going to be impactful and help this be a, continue to be a safe place for everybody. Thanks for listening to our show this week. Head over to our website for more resources and information on the topics we've been talking about today. You'll find us at eartheats.org. A big thank you to the Earth Eats team including Aabon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, Renee Reed, the IU Food Institute, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Abby Ang, Renee Miller, Sean Ost, Amy Countryman, Jennifer Robinson, Stacy Decker, Sharana Moore, and Allison Alkin. Also thanks again to Alex Chambers for production collaboration and editing assistance on this episode. 
Earth Eats theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio.